I love church. Will you say that with me? I love church. Now let's say it with meaning. I love church. Now say it loudly. I love church. I didn't scare you like Reverend Dr. Manuel Scott did when the first time I heard him preach a sermon. We were on a preaching conference together out west in the early 1980s. Um, About seven of us that were in a preaching festival that was out there. The way they decided who preached in what order were by birthdays. I remember his birthday is November the 11th. I think it's 1926, but November the 11th I know because mine was November the 12th, which meant I had to follow him in that preaching order as they started and worked their way through, which was not an envious experience to follow him on a preaching platform. For he stood up there and, as so many of our African-American pastors do, shouted out, I love church, and then went on to give a glorious sermon of which I had to follow 10 minutes later with my sermon. But he told a story as he shouted out that conversational phrase, I love church. As you know, he was born here in Waco, Texas in 1926. He was uh, certainly the uh, uh, one of seven children, parents were sharecroppers. And he told a story about growing up in that type of environment and how they had, did not have much. And therefore, they did not have dessert very often at their house. But on occasion, on birthdays, they usually had a chance their mother would save up some money and she would bake a cake. That would be their dessert for that evening. At that time, as before my time, you used to be able to go to the store and buy this stuff called scratch. And they used to make a bunch of stuff out of scratch. Um, But anyhow, I don't think they sell it anymore. But anyhow, you used to go buy this stuff called scratch, and she would make this scratch cake. And Manuel Scott shared that as she made this cake, that before she placed it in the oven, she would take a little test cake. In my mind's eye, I imagined like a little cupcake tin. And she put some of the batter in that, and she put it in the oven, and she would bake that test cake. She would bake it in case, that, I guess, to pull it out of the oven and make sure that it rose properly, make sure it tasted the way that she desired it to taste. And I guess if it didn't, she would add some more scratch to it, stir it up, and try again. But Manuel said that when she had tasted the cake, made sure it was the way that she wanted it, what do you think happened to the rest of that test cake? Seven children test cake. Whichever child was closest to her at the time when she had done her tasting received the remainder of that test cake. And he shared that the times that it was his joy to receive the rest of that little warm test cake. He said, do you think it satisfied him? Do you think it just said, this is the greatest thing, this is what it's all about, this is the finest dessert I've ever eaten? No. He said all that test cake did was whet his appetite for the big cake that would be on the table one day. The big cake that maybe several layers with icing and all that that would be sitting on the table that evening celebrating someone's birthday. Just whet his appetite for what was to come. And then he shouted, say it with me, I love church. Say it with me. I love church. He shouted and he says, I love church. Because church, when church is done well, is like that test cake. That test cake gave him a taste, a sense of anticipation of what was to come. And when church is done well, it gives this world a taste of what is to come. When church is done well, it gives this world a taste of heaven. Church isn't heaven yet. But when it's done well, we can give this world a taste of hope, a taste of joy, a taste of peace, forgiveness. Does not our world need to know a little taste of grace? And how about peace? We live in a world that needs a taste of heaven. 
We may not experience it fully here, but as followers of Jesus and those who do love church, we're called to live and to do church in a fashion that we are that taste of heaven. So say it with me. I love church. We live in a good world. God created this world and said it's good. Uh, we are called to be good stewards of this world, to live within it, in fact, and to, to treat it well and to be good stewards of that. But at the same time, you and I both know there are places of deep darkness in this world. There are places of deep darkness where we need to be that light of Christ and to bring that taste of heaven. He did create this world. But you know there are places where people take advantages of others. You know there's this thing called human trafficking out there where people abuse and take advantage of others. And we have CBF field personnel, missionaries, and CBF churches working around the world and in the U.S., working with those who are enslaved or experiencing human trafficking. There are dark places in this world. There are people who are selfish and they cheat and they steal, and there's people who are just on the verge of not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring because they've gotten into the trap of that predatory lending. And we have churches and field personnel working alongside to help in these dark places in our world. Poverty and hunger are rampant. 49 million Americans, two-thirds of them children, are in food scarcity in the United States even today. And we have people, field personnel, working in the 20 poorest counties and elsewhere, helping to bring a sense of peace, a taste of heaven, that we're not in this thing called life alone. Oh, we live in a good world. But there are some deep, dark places. And God calls us as those who are followers of him, who do love church, to be like that test cake, to bring a little taste of heaven, of help, of hope, of joy, of peace, of light into the world in which we live. I pastored, as Dr. Garland shared, for a number of years. I kept having to leave states as he was going through that. I've never been able to stay in the same state more than once. I'm going to have to do some discernment about that. But but as I pastored and moved from state to state and and around, uh, I fell in love with church and what church could mean and do for community and for this world. And so today, in the moments we have, I just want to maybe just toss out some ideas of maybe what churches that desire to be a little taste of heaven in this world might look like. Some qualities, some characteristics, some things that are occurring in churches today where I think that we might be able to bring a little bit of light into those deep, dark places that are in our world this day. That scripture passage that was read a moment ago out of Acts chapter 17 is always an interesting one to me. Because it reminds me that, you know, this thing called followers of Jesus is not something we can necessarily plan. There's not really a, we may think there's a program or a book that tells us how to do it, but there's really not. For it seems in Acts chapter 16, after kind of a debate in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Silas decided to go out and revisit the churches in Asia Minor that had been started on what we call the first missionary journey. And I think everybody at that church in Antioch, probably at that business meeting, probably voted that we think we'll sin. Paul and Silas, they thought that was a good plan. They voted And so they started out in Acts chapter 16, moving through, heading into Asia Minor. But it tells us in Scripture, once, twice, and some may even say a third time, that Paul and Silas were stopped from going into Asia Minor. That evidently wasn't God's will. It may have been the church business meeting vote, but evidently God had another plan for Paul and Silas. And so in a vision, 
During an evening in a vision, Paul, at night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him to come over to Macedonia and help us. And so instead of taking a left, he took a right. This wasn't in the program. They didn't vote on this, but he headed out, found a boat, somehow went across uh, into uh, Europe, found some, wasn't enough people there to have a synagogue, but he found some ladies in Lydia around the, uh, a um, stream, decided to have church. I mean, I'm sure this was planned. I mean, they, they developed this. He's following a strategy here. But founded a church. He went into Philippi, was speaking in the marketplace. Someone was abusing a young woman. We might call it social justice. She was, had, was possessed. He was using her to make a profit. Paul healed her. That got him into trouble. Paul and Silas were tossed in the jail. This is, this is, this is a church growth strategy. Now, y'all take this. I mean, this is how it works. Was tossed in the jail. Their singing was bad enough. An earthquake occurred. All the marginalized came out to, came to know Jesus Christ, but it became a bit dicey for them in Philippi. And so they were sent on their way. And they meandered their way up to the, to the peninsula there, working their way through Europe on the first time the gospel was there, find themselves in Thessalonica, only to run again into some economic problems as they shared Christ, which caused some economic concerns within that community. And they're hauled before the rulers. And what are they accused of? of turning the world upside down. Of turning the world upside down. You know, I think that's what the Reverend Dr. Manuel Scott had in mind when he spoke about I love church. I think he was trying to say that our calling as far as followers of Christ and of Jesus and for those who do love the church is we're still called to turn the world upside down. Or we might say right side up. So what does that look like? What does that look like what qualities for a church is really interested in turning the world upside down? I think, one, we have to be willing to be a disturbed church. So come join First Baptist Church. We're a disturbed church. That's really going to get people walking down your aisles. Now, when I use that term, I, I, I need to... Unfortunately, the world knows that Christians are disturbed. I mean, tweet accounts and Facebook accounts and what you hear on the news. Oh, we're concerned about all kinds of stuff. But I'm talking about being concerned about the things I mentioned earlier. I'm not talking about being concerned about gas prices or about who can stand behind a pulpit. Or, you know, just, I'm not talking about those type of things. I'm talking about those things that disturb the heart of God. I'm talking about those things that if you say, Jesus died on the cross for these things. And if we're disturbed as our church is about things that we don't really think Jesus died on the cross for, we need to kind of have a little bit of a wake-up call. But we need to be disturbed about things like human trafficking and poverty. We need to be concerned to things about um, people who are dying of HIV and AIDS. And we need to be concerned about um, economic predatory lending. We need to be concerned about things that hurt people, things that cause pain and hurt in those deep places. We need to be concerned about, disturbed about the things that really disturb the heart of Jesus. That maybe it's some of the same things that caused Jesus when he looked over to Jerusalem to weep. And I don't think it's a lot of the things that we hear about. I don't think it's a lot of the things that we see on the news. I love the evening. I actually don't watch it, so I guess it loves the wrong word a lot. But I enjoy it when they come on and say good evening. Then for the next hour, I'll tell you really why it's not a good evening. You know, I mean, that's kind of how it all begins. We need to be sure that we are disturbed about the things that really disturb the heart of God. That's when we are really going to be that taste of heaven. 
We have a, a CBF new church start in Shreveport, Louisiana, the Church of the Highlands. They went to enter into what's one of the more depressed areas there, went to walk through their neighborhood to see what was going on and what their community, what was harming their community. They asked the question, what do you hope for this community? And listened to those dreams and then sought to figure out how they might meet those dreams. And they learned that predatory lending was big there. And how do we manage that and handle that? And I can tell you the fuller story in another fashion. But they understood that they were, they, most of them had jobs and they were paid, but they were paid on those little debit cards, but they didn't have bank accounts. So every time you use an ATM machine, you may get your $25 out. They didn't want to get all of their money out, but they were paying three, four, five dollars in fees. So this church put an ATM machine in their wall, 50 cents, to help people have access to their money, train people to write tax returns for those who are poor. And you walk through that community now and you say, is there a church? And they say, I don't know the name. They call it the Church of the Highland. It's always hard to remember. But they say, I know there's a church up there that helps people. We need to be disturbed about the right things. I love church. Say it with me. I love church. When it's disturbed about the things that disturb the heart of God. I also love church when it's shattered. So come join Trinity Baptist Church. We're disturbed and shattered church. Come on down. When I speak of shattered, I guess I'm, I'm speaking of being real, being authentic, being genuine. There's a lot that's written about the generations with which we live, postmodern, millennial. There's a lot that maybe I don't even understand or agree with, but there's a lot that I do resonate with. And one thing that I do resonate with is that People want a genuine, authentic experience with God and with one another. They're tired of things that are fake. They're tired of empty facades. And they want an authentic, genuine experience with Jesus Christ. And they want an authentic, genuine experience doing it with one another. And when I think about the church today, a church that's willing to be shattered and authentic, it means that we know we're not for the grace of God, where might we be? We know that we are sinners and that, indeed, God brought us here together. And that we have sought and we've made, we have experienced a genuine experience with God. And we welcome you to come alongside us to have that authentic experience as well. You know, the beautiful stained glass windows that are in the chapel here. For years, that was some of the greatest artwork our world knew. And before they had it more manufactured, it was just broken shards of sharp edge glass that some artists took and with lead beating took broken, jagged, tossed away useless pieces of glass and put it together and created some type of picture. And you stick it up and you let the light shine through and you have some of the finest artwork our world has ever known made out of things that are broken and shattered. But with the light shining through, it becomes beautiful. That's the picture of church. That's what our world is looking at. We come and we say we are shattered and we are broken. And we don't want to be fake. But we have met Christ and we are authentic. And we invite you with your shatteredness to come alongside us. And together we can place ourselves in the hand of God. And he can make something more beautiful with us together than we could ever, ever experience alone. We need to be willing to be an authentic, shattered church. Honest about who we are our relationship with God, our love for each other. So I love church. Say it. I love church.
when it's disturbed and when it's shattered. But also love church when it's clumsy. When it's clumsy. You know, that whole experience in Acts chapter 17, that's kind of clumsy. I mean, you kind of, I would have voted for in that business meeting to go back and strengthen the churches there. And then you got this vision, and you got to go find a boat, and you got to cross into Europe, and you find a bunch of women, and you get tossed in the jail. It's just a pretty clumsy type of following God. No real church plan. But, you, but God revealed just the next step. And they're faithful to the next step. And then as they were faithful to that step, he revealed the next step. And somehow they discovered exactly what it was they were to do with their life and what God was calling them to be. And if you think that was clumsy, how about that old birth of Jesus stuff? Wasn't that kind of clumsy too? You know, Roman senses traveling on, you know, walking around stable, no room at the end. That's a pretty clumsy thing too, isn't it? We need to understand that being a church that's willing to turn the world upside down means that there isn't some program that we're going to have. It means that it isn't that we're going to figure it out or invent it. It means that we place ourselves in the presence of God through prayer and preparing to say yes long enough that he reveals that next step and we follow him, trusting him for the outcome. And as we follow God in that step, pretty soon we discover. We didn't invent it. We discover what we're called to be and what our church is called to do. It's really about this thing called trust. Trust in the spirit. Trust in one another. Clumsy, it's uh, being a bit of a free spirit. I'm very comfortable with clumsy. So come join Trinity Baptist Church. We're a disturbed, shattered, and clumsy church. But God can use clumsy. A number of years ago, I was asked to take a group to a Central Asian country called Kazakhstan. They were, this was about the time the Iron Curtain was coming down. And I had a friend from our church in Nashville that was there on, was a business person there working in that country. He gotten to know the president of Kazakhstan. And in his conversations with the president of Kazakhstan, had identified that as they were moving into more of a global system, he was interested in having um, the, his educators, his medical folks, and his business leaders kind of know more how to operate in the free world, global world system since the Iron Curtain was coming down. So they negotiated and ask if he can, might bring some business leaders, some medical folks, and some um, medical and business educators and medical folks to come and talk with their counterparts in Kazakhstan. So he called me and said, Harry, do you think you could help? And I said, yes. And so we took 60 people, 20 business, 20 medical, 20 educators to Kazakhstan to meet with their counterparts over about a four-week period to talk about what it was like to operate into, into the global system. And then I was asked, well, what am I supposed to do? And he says, well, what he would like for you to do is to meet with all the religious leaders that are there, the Islamic leaders, the Russian Orthodox leaders, and all the religious leaders, five different groups, because at the same time, he's going to give them their places of worship back and allow them to meet and worship, but he's seen what's happened elsewhere, and there's been a lot of religious strife, and he doesn't want that to happen. So you're supposed to write some type of religious document that would say you can worship freely, but you have to respect each other and not throw stones at each other. So it's an easy task to do for the three weeks that I was there. So I was flying there, flying to Kazakhstan. We landed in JFK. We got on this plane called Aeroflot. I think they didn't care whether it was the air or floated. I don't think they really cared one way or the other. Uh, to fly into Almaty, Kazakhstan. We did that. And, and so uh, I was meeting with them. Well, I flew to Kazakhstan for four weeks. My luggage threw, flew to Kansas City for five weeks. 
Um, I had traveled enough that I had one extra pair of clothes with me, and sometimes my luggage did um, was delayed getting there, but this is the only time it never did show up. So after a couple of days in Kazakhstan, I decided to go shopping. I'm 6'5", the average Kazakh is 5'6". <laughs> the four pairs of pants they had on the rack, I would have been the first guy in, you know, the first guy to wear what are the crew pants. I would have probably been the first one to ever do that, but um, nothing to buy. Well, then I was told that the lady on the 13th floor of the Almata Hotel, that not only would bring me breakfast in the morning, but that she was willing to um, wash my clothes for me. So what I was not wearing one day, I took to her, and in my best Russian, you know how we are, my best Russian, that's loud, slow English. If they, don't, if they don't understand us, we just speak more loudly and more slowly, and certainly they will understand us. So in my best Russian, my loud, slow English, I asked if she would please wash my clothes, and in her best English, which was even louder but much faster Russian, I think she said she would be glad to and wish me a good day. So I headed out to my meetings for the rest of that day and came back, and sure enough, on my bed that evening were my clothes, and not only my clothes, but other clothes. It was like the loaves and the fish. My clothes had multiplied in there to do that. And I did hold them up, but they were some Cossack's clothes, so it weren't mine. So I bundled them back up and walked to her little washroom, and in my best Russian, my loud, slow English, I thanked her for washing my clothes and handed her what was not mine and returned to my room. Well, the next evening, about 11 o'clock, after a long day, I'm laying there just in my shorts trying to cool off, and there's a knock on my door. She comes in. Everybody had a key into your room in Russia in those days in Kazakhstan. I don't even know why they bothered to give me one. But uh, she just walked on in and told me to come with her. So I walk over to my closet, get my pair of pants, put them on, put on my shoes, and follow her out. So we walk in, and she takes me to her room. Her little, her little room where she her washing machine is, where she cooks bre breakfast for me, and she's showing me a room, and our Russian and English conversations going on. I'm saying it's pretty nice, and I'm kind of looking around, and then I go back to my room. Well, the next night, there's a knock on the door. She comes in again. I get up, put on my pants and shirts, and we go walking around, and this time we're visiting other people's rooms at 11 at night, and we're kind of walking around these other people's rooms. You know, The third night, I'm dressed. I'm sitting there. I figure we're going somewhere. <laughs> Sure enough, she comes in, and we take for a second night tour some additional people's rooms. After three nights of this, I tell the interpreters with me, you're going to have to stay with me this evening until this lady comes on duty because we need to kind of figure this thing out. And he kind, of known what I, he kind of knew what I have shared with you. So she comes in, and they walk, uh, she walks in the door, and they have a conversation. And then he turns to me, and he says, do you have all your clothes? And I said, well, it's not much, but I have everything. And they have conversation again, and then he says, so you're not missing any clothes? And I say, no. And then he communicates to her. What had happened was when I took back clothes that weren't mine, she thought that she'd given somebody my clothes and just had swapped these two clothes. And these tours were supposed to be me walking around looking for my lost clothes, <laughs> which is in Kansas City somewhere, which I didn't know at that time. And she was, she'd seen this person who was picked up by the government every day, who was on TV. She was scared she was going to lose her job. She was scared she was going to get in trouble because she had lost this person's clothes. And she was so worried. She's taking me around these nights hoping that I might identify and find my clothes. And when I, when I told her that I hadn't lost my clothes, that I was fine, she broke down crying. And she looked and said, he's made me cry for three days. I try not to have that effect on too many people. But she said, he's made me cry for three days. He owes me a Bible. She had seen our Russian Bibles in the windowsill. We brought them in legally. They knew we were there. And so I got a Bible, and I had my interpreter write something in it, and I signed it. 
And she walked over, grabbed me, big old Russian lady, broke two ribs, hugged me, put me back down again, and went off. But the next evening, I hadn't gotten brave enough to hang my pants back up in the closet there on the chair next to me, and I heard the door coming in, and I'm getting dressed and ready to go, and she walks in with another wash lady from the 12th floor. And this lady knew a little bit of pidgin English, and she said, you gave her a Bible. You can have a Bible for my children, not necessarily for me, but for my children. And I gave her a Bible. And for the next 10 days, she brought a different wash lady at 11 o'clock at night to my room to get a Bible. And out of those 13 ladies on the 13 floors of the Amata Hotel, I still correspond with two. And there's two church starts in Kazakhstan by two wash ladies from the Hotel Amata. And you know that religious freedom document I wrote? Oh, it was signed, and we did that. But as Dr. Garland should, I've moved around a lot, and to be honest with you, I've lost that. I'm not even sure what's happened to it. But in a clumsy type of way, because a suitcase got sent to Kansas City rather than Kazakhstan, a couple churches started. That's kind of what this thing is, of being followers of Christ. So I love church. Say it with me. I love church, particularly when it's willing to turn the world upside down and give it a taste of heaven when it's disturbed, when it's willing to say we're pretty shattered. And we're willing just to follow in a kind of clumsy way, trusting that we'll discover that next step in our missional journey. Say it one more time. I love church. Listen. Listen. Did you hear Jesus? He says he loves church too. He does.